0: Here, I know you're likely expecting some holiday special, probably featuring Utaka and a lot of swearing. But uh, well, one of us—I won't say who—might have pissed off a big man in a thick red coat. So we're currently occupied with sorting through that bloody mess. But uh, good news—we want to provide you with some carnage to get you through the end of the year and the holidays, which can be tough for some and tougher for others. Uh, so check out our body horror episode that's just dripping in gore and insights and super fun. And once we get out of um, this bag, I don't, I don't know, it's too fucking dark to tell where we are. And it's really fucking cold, but yes, I promise, more horror surprises are in store for 2024. Jesus, Ryan. Oh, he can't talk right now. Um, well, I guess I got to figure out how to make a shiv out of a candy cane. That can't be too hard, right? Can I use my teeth? Well, I'm going to find out. Uh, Okay, bye. Welcome back, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. I am your co-host, Cass Clark. And as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And today we have a very special guest, horror writer, R.A. Busby. Welcome and thank you for coming on the pod.
1: Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. Okay, I'm uh, R.A. Busby and... I am recently authored the, uh, the novella Corporate Body through Cemetery Gates Media, and I'm really pleased to say I've got one coming out um, l- probably in 2024, um, early on, from, also from Cemetery Gates. I'm looking forward to a whole lot. And yeah, body horror is, uh, is something I've really gravitated towards, I think pretty much ever, for as long as I've had a body. <laughs> nice
2: congratulations on the new book and i want to say that corporate bodies is the itchiest book i've ever read it's excellent
1: <laughs> thank you that's a real yeah. that's that's very high praise and i appreciate that it was fun to write and
2: Absolutely. it also by
1: the way if it if, if it makes you feel any better it made me itchy to write as oh, well yeah. because it's sort of that that weird communicative itchiness like yawns where yeah you know <laughs>
2: Getting into our history, as long as people have had bodies, things have gone right and wrong in horrific ways. And I'll focus more on some of the ways that things have gone right horrifically. I think they'll be less triggering for people who have like uh, chronic illnesses and family members with those things. I've been obsessed with spare parts by Paul Craddock since I read it in January. So here's two examples of the body going horrifically right. Earliest nose grafts involved making two triangular cuts on a person's bicep joining at the tip and they live a third one and a surgeon would make two cuts around where the nose used to be. And they would stick those cuts together. And because of the way cuts heal, the person would hold their arm there for two weeks, however long, and the skin would all heal onto the face. So the bicep skin would heal onto the face and then they'd cut that last cut to take the skin off. And they'd put some kind of like wood or steel, depending on the era in the face, and sew up that last cut. And they would, that was how they would made nose grafts very early on, like much shockingly more early than I expected. This is also 100% true, and it's going me be very unpopular talking about at neighborhood barbecues because of how often I drop into conversation. But nobles used to buy the teeth of peasants. So a doctor would cut out the tooth with a little bit of gum, and if you got the right gum and the right blood type, the tooth would actually grow into the new mouth and connect with nerves and everything.
1: That's fascinating. I think I saw a photograph of that uh, of the nose graft holding their arm to their actual nose. It's horrifying and also amazing and extremely creepy. So I can uh, so although you'd definitely be welcome at my neighborhood bar- barbecue for that reason, <laughs> I could <can> see, <laughs> I can see yeah. what it wouldn't necessarily be popular universally.
2: So the thing with the nose graft that really gets me is you'd have to hold it there. For so long, imagine the muscle fatigue of just having your your bicep held to your nose for weeks at a time.
1: I'm gonna guess that they'd probably strap that up there so that you. Yeah.
2: Wouldn't... Yeah. I've seen some diagrams. They're in the, the spare parts book that I mentioned, where the they'd have they have yet yeah, like you said, strapped up there, and sometimes they'd have servants actually cut their arm instead as well, because um, rich people have been stealing the bodies of poor people forever.
1: Wow, I was reminded of some discussion that of uh, George Washington and uh, regards to the issue of teeth and purchasing teeth from enslaved people, there is so much there's so much there that i'm that would require a whole new podcast.
2: So between all the healing and the diseases you can get, the body can be a horrific thing. And body horror is the name of the fiction about that, which often pales next to the reality of, say, like, if you know anyone who's been on chemotherapy, mm. pretty fucking scary. But for today's history, we're going to focus on the fiction of where the body horror is the main element rather than something on the side. So, like for example, Roger slowly succumbing after being bitten in *Dawn of the Dead* is body horror. But *Dawn of the Dead*, we're not going to talk about it because it's really the big bad is consumerism and zombies. Mm. So hopping in around 2 C.E., Apuleius is the Golden Ass, the first novel in Latin, and it's about a man turning into a donkey. It's been 15 or years or so since I read it, but I did like it a lot when I did. Um, Greek mythology has a ton of horrific body transformations throughout. Like imagine Prometheus having his liver eaten daily by an eagle and then regrowing it overnight. And I'm not even sure what would hurt more: the, the liver regrowing or the eagle eating it. Ugh. Anyway, obviously Metamorphosis has a ton of that, and it H.C.E. has a lot of insane transformations as well as the story of Tiresias, which I think is very popular now. In terms of novels. As we understand the more English novels, Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Frankenstein, is a compelling option for the first body horror novel. Mm-hmm. Victor Frankenstein builds a man out of corpse parts and brings him to life before abandoning the creature and turning it into a monster. And Nikolai Gogol's widely imaginative 1836 story, The Nose, a bureaucrat's nose jumps off his face and starts to live a life of its own. Absolutely insane imagery in that story, and I love it. Edgar Allan Poe did his fair share of body horror, with none of it hitting as hard, for me at least, as his 1839 story, The Fall of House of Usher, where Roderick's illness makes sound extremely painful to him. Following Apulius's footsteps, uh, Franz Kafka's 1915 novel, The Metamorphosis, tells the story of Gregor Samsa, who wakes up as a bug. Um, noted racist and father of cosmic horror, H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft did some cool stuff with body horror, especially in his 1927 story, the color out of space. So I won't mention a ton of literature after this. Do y'all have any you feel like you want to add to this?
1: Pose Berenice is another one. I mean, because the guy obsesses on this woman's teeth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And eventually in sort of a delusion, um, I believe it's been a while since I read it, but I believe that she dies. He digs up the body and in this sort of delusion, isn't aware of what he does. And then when he sort of comes back to himself, he sees this uh, this um, this bloody wrench and like 20 teeth uh, in his lap that clearly he has pulled from the mouth of the dead corpse. So it's like it goes hard.
2: In 1932, we got Freaks from Todd Browning, uh, which is an interesting case because Browning grew up on a circus. And I think he treats the characters of his films performed by actual freaks from a circus, as people. But audience at the time reacted very violently to like uh, a no-legged man. And the film was banned for decades. It effectively derailed Browning's career. I don't know if you all have seen it. Do you think of it as body horror? You have.
1: I have not seen it. I've heard of it. I have not personally seen it, but I understood that they were using people with, uh, with uh, divergent bodies that as performers, and I wasn't sure to what degree it was exploitative or whether it was sympathetic, But, but uh, because obviously that's a deeply complicated issue. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I have haven't seen anything? it, but oh, I'm okay.
0: Yeah, but I, it's come up before in this podcast. So I feel like at this point, this is just like kismet being like, will you please watch this so we can talk about it?
2: <laughs> uh, Criterion is putting out a set of three Browning movies in October, and Freaks will be one of them. That yeah. might be a good place to grab it.
0: There's my chance.
2: Other than that, in film, we really start to see a lot of body horror in the 50s. So 1955, The Quarter Mass Experiment is a hammer horror film about an astronaut transforming an alien creature had a sequel, Quartermaster Two, in 1957. Hammer also released X, The Unknown in 1956. Um, 1956 had an absolute classic with an Invasion of the Body Snatchers, based on the Jack Finney novel of this, uh, The Body Snatcher. Also, there's a classic remake starring Donald Sutherland, which I'm sure you've at least seen the gif of him at the end, um, in 1978. Great movie. 1958 was kind of the first boom year for body horror. The original, The Blob, with its incredibly catchy tune starring Steve McQueen, dropped. That got a sequel in 72 and a very popular remake in 1988. The original, The Fly, starring one of my faves, Vincent Price, very much drawing from The Golden Ass and The Metamorphosis. Um, he turns into a fly. It got sequels in 59 and 65, plus a Cronenberg remake starring Jeff Goldblum in 86. The H-Man also came out that year, directed by Ishiro Honda, who you may recognize as the director of Godzilla. And the British flick, Fiend Without a Face, also came out in 58. Roger Corman, who I love and never saw a fat he didn't try to cash in on, directed The Wasp Woman in 1959, which is remade in 95, where an aging beauty executive uses Queen Wasp jelly to de-age, but it turns her into a wasp who commits murder once a month. 1960, The Hands of Orlac, a remake of a 1924 film by the same name, was released. 1960 also saw The Horrors of Spider Island. The 60s were a little quiet after that, though some episodes of The Outer Limit and The Twilight Zone could absolutely be considered body horror. 1968, we got a huge one, which I think Cass will be talking about with Beyond the Cabin in the Woods very soon. Rosemary's Baby, based on Ira Levin's novel by the same name. The film was written for the screen and directed by convicted sex abuser and fugitive Roman Polanski. The film and novel explore the horror of pregnancy.
0: Real quick before we go on. Okay, so just one thing. I just wanted to make a note of like the reason why there was such a boom of body horror, especially in the late fifties, early sixties, was that was also around the eight, the time of the atomic age uh, in the world. So like a lot of that horror was expressing the idea of like, does did and will science go too far so things like people turning to flies blob like things coming in wiping around mass amounts of people like there was just these high concept ways of still processing what it means to have atomic weaponry and what it meant to use it on another culture and that's what we see explored through these very wild ideas but it's getting at that anxiety of like can we go back and understanding we can't go back and fear of what that means for future experiments or, f- or future policies in the world. There's one to take a quick note to like, yeah. state that because that's one time where you can really feel how history inspired
1: like, the horror processing of that. Well, and Amazing. something that's relevant to scanners to piggyback on what exactly. Cass is saying is that uh, thalidomide, for example, in pregnancy uh, was introduced mm-hmm. in, in 1957 so we've got not only that, uh, our, our fear of, um, of science, but that sort of mingled with both atomic concerns um, and then also pregnancy and drugs and that sort of uh, intersection of all of those things coming uh, coming into play in the, in, in the public circle. Yeah. So the 70s. In
2: 1970, David Cronenberg's second feature, Crimes of the Future, dropped. He reused the title in 2022. We're going to be talking about him a lot today. In 1973, Sis <laughs> showed Sis. Sh- I can't do that laughing. Sis showed a man being <laughs> turned into snakes by a series of injections. William Castle's final film, Shanks, showed a puppeteer controlling the reanimated dead in 74, 75. Cronenberg is back with Shivers, a horrifying story about a parasite that can take a human over. Also fascinating in film history, like we talked about on our Black Christmas episode, this film got challenged because it was basically paid for by the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. And this very angry journalist was like, this is what our, our tax dollars are paying for. Another Ira Levin adaptation in 1975, The Stepford Wives debuts, it was remade with an all-star cast and a huge budget in uh, 2004. 1976 Squirm featured carnivorous worms. Based on a Dean Kuntz novel by the same name, Demon Seed is about a supercomputer forcing pregnancy on a woman in 1977. David Lynch debuted that year with his art house classic Eraserhead, as did The Incredible Melting Man, wherein radiation turns an astronaut into a flesh-eating ghoul. Cronenberg's Rabid came out that year as well, which was remade by the Saska sisters in 2019. Brian De Palma got in on the action in 1978 with The Fury. 1979, Ridley Scott's Alien has one of the best body horror scenes in film, for my money, with the chestburster. Um, The movie has six sequels across three franchises, with more on the way. The unlicensed but technically legal Italian sequel to Alien, Alien 2 on Earth, came out in 1980. 1980, Ken Russell directed Altered States, a film about trying to treat schizophrenia with deprivation tanks and LSD. And as soon as I heard that, it jumped very high on my to-watch list. And Seminoid came out in 1980 as well, another pregnancy fear film that sounds a lot like Alien, which will be a huge theme going forward. Once Alien came out, everyone wanted to, to do scenes like that. 1981 was a huge year. We had three werewolf flicks, which we won't spend very much time on, like I said earlier, but Full Moon High, The Howling, and American Werewolf in London, which boasts probably the best werewolf transformation in horror films to this point. One of my favorite flicks came out that year, Possession, starring Isabella Johnny and Sam Neill, having a messy divorce and creating a horrific creature in the process. Scanners, our first breakout film, also came out that year, which we'll come back and talk about later. As did Galaxy of Terror and Sam Raimi's first film, Evil Dead, dropped in 81, which got sequels in 87, 92, 2013, 2023, and a TV show, Ash vs. the Evil Dead. 1982 was another big year for body horror. So we're seeing a lot of this, and I chalk a lot of it up to we had these like gigantic breakthrough and special effects, as well as I'm not sure exactly when the AIDS epidemic started, but this was around that. And Ronald Reagan was also president. And I think those three things. I'm curious, do you all have opinions on why we got so much body horror in the 80s?
0: Yeah, the AIDS epidemic started in, in 1981. So it's pretty, it's, I mean, it's lined up pretty eerily close to that. I think a lot of Reaganomics has a bunch to do with this in the sense of like other four outside forces that can corrupt you coming in and destroying your life, which is like, I don't know, it's kind of also sounds like possession, but that's kind of, I feel like the body horror in this era is very, it is literally very possessive. It feels like something corrupts you internally and, and changes you. And I feel like it's really hard not to see that from like, A ergonomic standpoint of like this idea that like corporate greed and like stomping out like non-wealthy people isn't going to have some sort of psychological effect about whether or not you're going to be the person who is like quote unquote ruined or like something else bigger than you is just going to take over you and I think there's a lot of that in there and I'm curious Ari what do you think because it's such a such a I feel like it's easier to enough time has passed that I can Talk with more like I feel more confidence being like oh yes the atomic age of horror. but I feel like the eighties I feel like we're still so not far enough away even if we are literally that I can't quite articulate it just yet.
1: I think that there's a confluence of a number of factors, um, not the least of which is the end of Vietnam, which was still pretty darn mm-hmm. fresh in folks' memories, especially things like you know uh, napalm and the deforestation and the, the and, and images like. Like that young Vietnamese girl um, mm-hmm. running towards the camera as her, her village and and she herself had been, had been napalmed. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as you were mentioning with Reaganomics, and one factor also would be the fact that uh, there was a lot of defunding of federally funded um uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, support for uh, for folks who were who yeah. were uh, ho- who were without homes or who were suffering from um, mental illness or PTSD. And when the funding was pulled from those institutions, it massively increased the population of folks who who were homeless and who needed that care. And and so we see the as as Cass was pointing out, we see the effects of essentially a lot of corporate greed leaving people who need medical care effectively stranded. So in
2: 1982, we got The Beast Within, Parasite 3D, Extra, which I have not seen, but sounds absolutely insane, Basket Case, and John Carpenter's Stone Cold classic, The Thing, which got a prequel in 2011. In 1983, we got what's possibly Cronenberg's most famous film, Videodrome, Long Live the New Flesh. 1983 also had The Deadly Spawn, And until I made this list, I hadn't really put together how much body horror involved aliens, but there's a ton of it. 84, Trauma released The Toxic Adventure, which got sequels in 89 and one in 2000, with another one on the way. The first, A Nightmare on Elm Street, introduced Freddy Krueger, Burnt in a Fire, to audiences. I wasn't sure about including this one, but the franchise has seven sequels and a reboot. Hmm. Toby Hooper's Life Force arrived in 1985 which I think is a good movie, but was not well received. It kind of led to the studios kicking Cooper to the curb. And after that, he was just kind of stuck in making low budget movies, which is pretty sad because he had some great contributions. 1985 had the opposite effect on Gordon Stewart's career as he made the jump from theater to film directing the classic reanimator. The film also helped launch Brian Young's directorial career. When he agreed to direct Ride of Reanimator, he convinced producers that he could direct he should direct another movie first, The Practice, which led to him directing the Goopy Body Horror Classic Society in 1989. Mm-hmm. Lord Gizelon has a great essay about that and Ghoulish number one. 1985 also had one of Larry Cohen's best, The Stuff. Gordon Stewart was back in 1986 with From Beyond. 1986 also saw Night of the Creeps, Spookies, and Deadly Friend directed by Wes Craven. Cronenberg also came back with The Fly, which I know I mentioned it earlier, but I'm doing it again because it's so good. 1987, Junji Ito published the first installment of Tomi. His manga is among the creepiest body horror I've ever encountered. Definitely check him out. Seven films um, in 87, The Hidden, Peter Jackson's Bad Taste, The Kindred, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, Street Trash, and The Curse, an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, and Clive Barker's Hellraiser. And Hellraiser has 10 sequels and counting. I don't think it will ever stop getting sequels. 88 was another huge year with The Brain, Brain Damage, Beetlejuice for the Kiddos, The Kiss, Slugs, The Nest, and Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, which is now a show on Amazon Prime. Fun fact, Dead Ringers was loosely based on a novel by Barry Wood, based on a real case and I wrote up that whole thing for rigid Horror a long time ago. In addition to Society, which I already mentioned, 1989 had another classic, Tetsuo the Iron Man. Directed by Shinya Tsukamoto, Tetsuo defies description, but will make you feel a lot of strange things. It got sequels in 92 and 2010. 1989 also had Sweet Home, which our guest Sam Stone recommended way back in our Haunted House episode, as well as Leviathan and Chameleons. 1990 had the French blood-sucking parasite flick, Baby Blood, and the classic original Jacob's Ladder, which got a not-well-received remake in 2019. In 1991, Papa Cronenberg left horror, but not the body stuff, when he made Naked Lunch. 1992 saw Peter Jackson's Insane Brain Dead, and Bernard Rose's Clive Barker adaptation Candyman hit theaters. Candyman scored sequels in 95 and 97, and also a requel in 2021. In 1993, we got Body Melt, a rare body horror comedy from Australia, Guillermo del Toro's directorial debut, Kronos, Carnosaur, a Corman produced Jurassic Park knockoff, Return of the Living Dead 3, Freaked, and the debut of The X Files. 1995 had Species, an alien invasion flick that got sequels in 98, 2004, 2007. 1996 had Naked Blood, which sounds absolutely grotesque, and I want to watch it. It's about a, a new drug that makes pain sexually pleasurable for three female experiment subjects, and it sounds absolutely hard to watch, very extreme sounding. Troma's German film Killer Condom also came out that year, billed itself as a six-foot-long fanged condom. 96 also had Tom Holland, Stephen King weight loss horror adaptation Thinner, 97 had Event Horizon, Mimic, The Relic, and Wishmaster. 98 had Teen Horror Hit the Faculty, as well as Phantoms and Strange Lands. We also got Milo in 1998, a slasher about an anthropomorphic tumor. Takashi Mike's Audition came out in 1999 and had some of the most uncomfortable violence that on film I've ever seen. Mike is an absolute master, he should probably be on this list more, but he's directed at least two movies pretty much every year since 1991. I think it was like something like five and 99 when Audition came out. So it is impossible to keep up with all of the work he's putting out. Although a lot of it is very good, surprisingly good for how much he puts out. Um, 99 also had Papa Cronenberg's existence, Idle Hands and Virus. Mentioning 2000's Ginger Snap because I know how much Kath loves that film. Ishigemike is very popular. Also brutal, Ichi the Killer debuted in 2001. Eli Roth came onto the scene with Cabin Fever the next year. That got sequels in 2009, 2014, and 2016. 2002 also saw Lucky McKee's directorial debut May hit theaters, as well as early new French Extremity In My Skin from Rita DeVan. Takeshi Mike struck again in 2003 with Gozu, as did Stephen King with an adaptation of his novel Dreamcatcher. Thai horror Art of the Devil dropped in 2004 with sequels in 2005 and 2008. Japanese Horror Infection came out that same year. Probably most notably, though, was that Saw came out in 2004, which launched the careers of director James Wan and writer Lee Whannell. The franchise is on its 10th installment as of this is recording. It's another one of those franchises I think is just going to keep going forever. Another huge series started that year, Eli Roth's Hostel, which has sequels in 2007-2011. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on this, because the common thinking is we're getting movies like Saw, Hostel, cabin fever, because we're seeing 9-11, Guantanamo Bay, and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, I think that that theory is pretty solid. We were seeing, like, it's not to say we haven't seen war atrocities before, like Ari brought up, like we've seen stills, like there were like war events that were like on television and impacted people psychologically, but it wasn't quite the same as in an internet age where we could see someone get hung on live TV, where we could see footage of interrogation tactics like on the ground and like leaked things like that. And I think that definitely seeped into people's brain. And, and I I can't help but see how that did influence these films. A lot of these films are hugely xenophobic too. Like that's mm-hmm. probably the, my main, Complaint against all of like eli roth's work for the most part is that often the the body horror is like in some ways connected to the fear of an outsider it doesn't necessarily have to be like um like a person of color but there's always like something like in Hostel where it's like the way that they're showing other cultures is barbaric and it's like the americans getting tortured by these like other other people that is just like foreign to them like that that is the idea that gets kind of rehashed like again and again in in these films so I think people were becoming very nationalistic without realizing that's what they were doing which like after an atrocity happens to your country I I understand the need to be like well like are we okay like how do we react to that and some people fiercely were like very pro-america and the result of that is that you kind of invite xenophobia into your life if you do that
1: but one of the things that I'd also like to say is that, um, in in light of what you were saying about the the xenophobia in some of Roth's work, or at least the perceived xenophobia, is that um, I wonder to what degree it's some uh, some degree of dip- displacement because some of the imagery from uh, Guantanamo Bay of prisoners being being tortured. I remember that person who was up on a box with a, a a bag over their head with electrodes attached to points in their body. And that was that was us we did that. And I think that that in many ways is one of the most horrific images and also the implications of those images that I remember seeing out of uh, out of that particular, period of time and so it's I think in, in in many ways there's this effort to to displace and say, oh no, no no, that's not us that it's it's somebody else. but it's definitely not us.
0: I don't know if you saw Oppenheimer, but I feel like we're still we're still not quite ready in in American culture to process all the war crimes we've done. And I think this, yeah, I think there's definitely displacement at play in, in these quote unquote torture porn films for sure.
1: I know that it sounds odd because I, I I am a fan of body horror, but that's that uh, sort of uh, thread of body horror that I can't the torture porn stuff. And again, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to disparage yeah uh, folks who who do find a lot of meaning in it. I personally can't watch it. I can hey you give me you know give me pregnancy horror great I'm there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know uh, zombies uh, you know medical stuff gone wrong. Yeah, but uh, but but the saw and the hostel, et cetera, I mm. it's just not not something that I can watch.
0: Yeah, it's almost always linked to like copaganda in some way. There's almost always like a law enforcement piece to those stories too, especially like the saw franchise where you have mm. to at least at, at least that franchise. Um it's it's interesting. So I think as it's evolved, it does confront the corruption within like police authorities in america and governmental corruption but there's always some of that in there too where you're like am i in somehow endorsing and supporting a police state when i'm watching these kind of films if you if you play out with their messaging with so i i totally understand that i understand people love it but it's agreed it's not really my go-to unless there's like a supreme reason for it
2: I've actually never seen an Eli Roth movie, which I probably shouldn't admit on a horror podcast. <laughs> uh, maybe one day I will. I've just never heard very great things about it. I've heard Not, a lot of xenophobia. Yeah. I've heard that it's homophobic. And I'm going to see someone's uh, Achilles tendon get cut, which I've seen a hundred different movies at this point. Don't yeah. particularly enjoy seeing it at any time.
0: <laughs> no, I will say uh, the 2015 film Knock Knock is fantastic to the extent that I was like, i still can't believe he directed it like i don't know what happened but it's really good and it's it's honestly it's um technically there's some there's some body horror guess, in there but it's mostly like a home invasion story but it's about like these two stranded women just like tricking this like arguably unfaithful husband into like a night of horrors and by the end you're just like well Good for her. <laughs> so I do recommend oh. Knock, Knock. If you're going to watch any, I okay. would say Knock, Knock. Yeah.
2: All right, so uh, 2005, we also got the, uh, the Japanese film Meatball Machine, a remake of a, a film from 1999 that scored a sequel. In 2006, we got Poultry Geist, Night of the Chicken Dead, Taxidermia and Slither. 2007 had a one big one, Teeth, which notoriously is about a woman who grows teeth in her vagina. Things really open up again in 2008. We get Dead Girl, One Eyed Monster, Splinter, Tokyo Gore Police, The Ruins, and French New Extremity Classic Murders, which deeply hurt my soul. 2009 had five more body horror books Books of Blood, Carriers, Dread, Splice, Neil Blomkamp's Debut, District Nine, and the notorious Human Centipede first sequence, which had sequels in 2011 and 2015. 2010 saw Darren Arnofsky's Divisive Black Swan and Repo Man. In 2011, Swedish film Marianne, Michael Bean's second directorial effort, The Victim, and Pedro Almagavar's The Skin I Live In all came out. The Saska Sisters were back in 2012 with American Mary. Brandon Cronenberg, Son of David, made his directorial debut with Antiviral. Then Amata Force and Excision, which I think Cass were also released that year.
0: Oh yeah, it's uh, if you like Ginger Snaps, it's Definitely watch Excision, but I just know that it's like way boreier and the ending is
2: dark. Eli Roth directed Green Inferno was also released that year. Some big name actors also got into body horror action as Daniel Radcliffe starred in an adaptation of Joe Hill's Horns and Scarlett Johansson starred in A24's Under the Skin. 2014 was another big year with some heavy hitters. Clown, the Japanese film Parasite with a Y, Starry Eyes. Kevin Smith's Tusk, in which Justin Long has turned into a walrus, indie smash hit It Follows, and Benson and Warhead's Excellent Spring all came out. 2015, we got Bite, Closet Monster, and the excellent Turkish horror film Baskin. 2016 was another insane year. Are We Not Cats, The Untamed, our second breakout film, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, Julia Decornau's Devastating Debut Raw, and the action Cosmic Horror Oddity, The Void. One of the things that's happening across this history is that body horror is getting taken more seriously over time. So in 50 years, we've gone from Roger Corman B-movies to 2017, where out of the four body horror films that got released, three got theatrical runs. The fourth was Kuso, Flying Lotus' Insane, Surrealistic Nightmare, which didn't, but deserved one. It was very cool. But the other three were Life, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Get Out. Killing of a Sacred Deer won the Sorry, won the Cannes Film Festival Best Screenplay Award, and Get Out was nominated for four Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor. And writer-director Jordan Peele won for Best Original Screenplay. I don't place a huge ton of stock in rewards, uh, in awards, especially in the the film community, because a lot of it's like Leonardo DiCaprio is going to get nominated every year because he's Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, not because he's the best actor but because he's very popular and he is a good actor but he could do his worst performance and still get nominated is my opinion um but the leap from canadian media attacking shivers in 1975 and saying like this is a horrible waste of public funds to seeing it being like an oscar winning thing is just incredible uh 2018 saw uh, Germany's terrifying mermaid transformation flick, Blew My Mind, as well as major theatr- theatrical releases, Overlord, Luca, Luca Gugadino's superior remake, and Lee Whannell's Upgrade. The, anima- the anime cry Crybaby also hit Netflix that year. Again, body horror is thriving our current weird horror boom space, which starts around uh, when The Babadook comes out. Another great year in 2019, The Color Out of Space, directed by a returning Richard Stanley, who would soon after be mired by abuse allegations from his partner, Swallow, Joko Anwar's excellent remake, The Queen of Black Magic, and The Beach beach House all came out. The world plunged into real-life body horror in 2020, which we won't spend a ton of time talking about. Uh, In terms of films, we got Friend of the World, PG, Psycho Gorman, which is an absolute blast, and Brandon Brandon Cronenberg's breakthrough hit, Possessor. Christopher Landon's Freaky also hit that year, and we weren't sure whether or not to include it, it was a ton of fun, and we had a really fun watch party when it came out. 2021 uh, brought another great slate of films, Antlers, Julie DeCorno's second film, Titane, and M. Night Shyamalan's Old. In 2022 saw Jordan Peele returning with some gruesome body horror in Nope, and what was billed as David Cronenberg's first horror film in years, Crimes of the Future, so I kind of put it as more sci-fi, although it did have a ton of body horror elements. But whew, okay, what did I miss? Yeah, I
0: think that was pretty inclusive and got all the big hits and a lot of good like deep cuts or, or films that people probably haven't
1: seen before, but will likely check out after listening to this. So I think you did a great job. I just love to add to this list that I wish I had because talk about a list of, of things that I want to watch and many things that had flown under my personal radar. The more recent... M. Night Shyamalan's servant, which definitely had to do with body horror in the light of, of a deceased child within the family.
2: So I see three big threads. There's an illness taking over the body, which is a lot of these sounds. Another is an alien forcing humans to give birth. Another is body swaps. Is there anyone that I'm missing? And Do you have a favorite of the types of body horror?
1: I think for me, anyway, I've got sort of a a combo i'm gonna say birth taking over the body sort of a mixture Mm. of your your first ones being a real favorite
0: yeah i'm I'm not sure what's like in the water right now in the horror film world but i keep seeing pregnancy becoming more and more and more of a it hasn't quite hit the, the limit but i'm seeing like after the dead ringers remake there's that movie false positive there was clock which was like an indie horror feature film that came out a bit ago American Horror Story is coming out with Delicate, which is going to be about like a birthing, possibly monster invasion pregnancy story. And it's, it's interesting to me that I feel like we're focusing on this idea, especially in the light of how Roe versus Wade got overturned, but now we're turning mm. back into the idea of the horrors of pregnancy the the horrors that we don't talk about with motherhood especially when it doesn't become a choice so for me I'm very fascinated with what's happening right now and whether or not it's happening on a subconscious or conscious level as we've talked about with these films like sometimes you're like oh are you aware that we're you're tapping into your anxiety here or a cultural anxiety here or are you making this art that kind of exposes some feelings that have emerged because of it so for me birthing horror and and all of that I I think is like, I'm just very obsessed with what's happening with it
2: right now. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think absolutely that uh, the the idea of aliens taking over your body is true both on the personal and political levels with the issues around Roe v. Wade and the increased physical control over uh, women's bodies prohibiting Pregnant people from, you know, going out of state, perhaps to seek treatment and essentially your body not being your own, which is certainly an issue with, uh, with many body horror movies, including obviously Rosemary's Baby and others. But that's one big one.
2: So, Scanners have written and directed by body horror master David Cronenberg, released in 1982. It's Cronenberg's seventh film, and it tells the story of Cameron Bale played by Stephen Lack, a psychic being sent on a mission to find fellow scanners, especially Daryl Revick, played by Michael Ironside. As Vale gets closer to Revick, his understanding of the situation grows, and doubt casts over everything he and the audience think they know about these characters in this world. So I always like to start out with, how'd y'all like this movie?
1: I thought that it was brilliant and also uneven. Of course, the, the head splatter scene is tour de force and it still holds up as an effect, even though you know it's coming because it's been gifted a million times, but also because you know it, it's just in itself really super famous. That was an amazing way to, to start off. And I think I, I can't praise Michael Ironside enough in terms of being that person that we are really drawn to throughout the whole movie. Um, in the middle, it gets a little muddled for me.
2: Yeah.
1: The beginning hooked me in right away. I think the last five minutes are fantastic.
0: Like, I kind of yeah. felt like I was drifting. Like, to be honest, I was like so into it up until right around the time where it gets a bit more conspiratorial, but it's not very fleshed out. And I was like, all right, I'm going to make meatballs while I'm watching this. (laughs) So that was my experience. I was like rolling up my like fake meatballs with like dicing up onions and peppers while I'm like, oh, that person just exploded. Oh, that person just somehow uh, melted a telephone booth (laughs) with his mind. I was like, huh. Uh, But then when it got to the, like the final third, I was really hooked. So I think that maybe um, this is one of those cases where I think you can see how Cronenberg was experimenting with a lot of things. that I do think he really refines in 2022's crimes of the future, as far mm. as like, how do you make a conspiracy film interesting and how do you keep it just vague enough that we understand there's like warring factions, but like not so vague that it feels like unclear, which is a hard, it's a hard line to do as a creative. And I think this one doesn't quite do it, but I really appreciate seeing it because I can then see how those themes grew in his later work.
2: So Ari had mentioned the head explosion scene, and you said that you've seen it before and you've seen it gift a million times. Cass, did you know it was coming as you watched or was it a surprise?
0: I knew I kind of accidentally spoiled myself because I, I know the gift very well. And I was listening to a podcast that I like just to hear what their take up was of scanners before I, I watched it. So I did get it ruined for me, but I will say that <laughs> I was surprised it happened so early on. I was convinced through seeing the gifts that it would be like the final act thing. I was not prepared for the final act level of body heart. I was like on the edge of my seat,
1: just like cheering for like how far it went yeah. <laughs> from what I understand as just sort of a little, uh, little fun fact, that Cronenberg wanted to make that the first scene of the movie and really just begin with a literal bang. But he was concerned that people who were late entries into the movie would miss that scene. And so he kind of stuck on that first 10 or so minutes with Stephen Lack in the, in the shopping mall, uh, saving the big bang for folks who were still out getting their popcorn after the movie had started.
2: That's too bad, because I think the opening with the head exploding would have been A much stronger opening nothing against the stephen lack opening but if you have that psychic fight with the head exploding you gotta lead off with that
0: and what a like a conscientious filmmaker to think of that because i think of films now a hundred percent if this film was made in 2023 would have started with the head explosion and would have just been like if you missed it it's your problem and then wait for everyone to be talking about it on twitter or on blue sky or whatever so like that is just very interesting that he thought that far ahead.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. and I think, too, just to piggyback what you're saying, I think now the, the thinking would be, hey, if they miss it in the theater, they can always stream it. They can always go back. They can always hit rewind and see it again. But obviously, that option really didn't exist in 1982 to, to mm-hmm. that degree, certainly.
2: So the effect itself was crafted by special effects legend Dick Smith and frequent Cronenberg collaborator Chris Wallace. And the explosion, they did a couple takes and they found, they realized the only way they could get it was to shoot the fake head in the back with a shotgun. They just made movies differently in the 70s. Not always for the best, a lot of people died as a result of them making movies in these ways. But yeah, that was pretty wild. So how do you think the splattery effects throughout the film shape the tone of scanners?
1: I think it makes us take their power seriously. Hmm. because we can see what uh, what Revic does. And we can also see the degree to which they are unprepared for someone with the kind of psychic capabilities that, that he has, because this is supposed to be at a meeting for, I think, future investors, if I'm not mistaken. And he just infiltrates that whole thing, steps up, nobody recognizes him, and boom. And so I think that subsequently when he's about saying look we can take over the world i think we believe that he is able to do that because we've seen what he can do
2: yeah going way.
0: yeah i think it was effective and i think that it does the thing that i think body horror does well which is like bringing in anonymity to the equation right where it's like would you even know if a scanner was there this person certainly did not know a scanner was there and it makes that a part of its horror too like some, i guess maybe that's where my brain was thinking about invasion of the body snatchers where it was like the idea of like the horror being at home being ne- your next door <laughs> Ergonomics right there but um that idea i think is really unsettling and it just gives you someone to kind of anchor the film onto because a lot of the, the yeah. story is pretty murky and and tries to be a mystery but it it lets you know like this is a force that i'm not sure what that what they're trying to achieve, but they're looking for a reckoning, which then makes you curious to like, well, who's obviously going to step in to combat that or join forces with, which I think just sets up Cameron's character a bit more nicely than the intro does. I feel like the tacked on intro feels very tacked on and unnecessary. Yeah,
2: I think the the opening also is a very good job because the guy whose head explodes explains like, here are the side effects. And he's very calm, but he's also a scanner. The idea that a scanner cannot... Detect this scanner just kind of adds to Revik's power in a very cool way. So y'all had mentioned that the second act sagged for you. So an interesting anecdote about this film, it had to start shooting without a complete script because of rules regarding the capital cost allowance tax shield for producers. I am not a math guy. and could not explain to you how these rules work. I'm not a lawyer. Do you think that the reason the second act feels the way it does is because of this lack of script.
1: I would say 100%. It's sort of like um in my head, the plot sort of looks like a straight line until we get to that second act. And then it looks like a kitten has been playing with a ball of string. And then it comes out to the, the fabulous powerful climax and I think that for a, a quest movie, in many because uh, in many ways, that's what this is. He's going from person to person to find out more about, about Revok and about the scanners. I think that we'll have a certain degree of tolerance for the the kitten with a ball of string shaped plot. But I have to admit, I lost uh, I lost a lot of the thread until we got to that third act. And it centered much more on, on Cameron Vale and Revok.
2: One of the things I love in the middle is when Cameron goes to see Benjamin Pierce, Especially when Pierce kind of describes how his art freed him from the voices. I'm curious, because you're both artists that I genuinely admire. Do you feel like your writing kind of frees you?
0: Maybe. I'm not sure. But I think one part that I've talked about before is it's like, as someone who has like CPTSD and, and anxiety... It feels like I'm exercising those demons in a way where like sometimes it's literally just like, oh, wow, I had this really bad night terror and I'm transforming it into something that like I'm rooting it in a story and then giving shape to something. And in doing that, I feel like it relieves some sort of like pressure valve, you know, like um, we haven't Mm -hmm. talked about it yet, but I'm curious because I, I don't quite understand how these scanner powers are expressed, but it does seem at least to me that there's this sense of buildup in that like when they finish their scans, there's some sign of release. I'm not quite sure in the film if it's orgasmic or if it's more of a, like, you know, like, um, like a hangnail feeling where you just need to like get it out to feel better. But I feel like it's something, something like that for me, at least. Ari, how do you feel about your writing?
1: Oh, I, you know, it's interesting this issue about the art freeing uh Benjamin Pearson, the voices, because to me, like Cass said, I don't feel like it frees me but it is in many ways a release valve and there's a distinction Mm -hmm. in the sense that that i'll often hear these uh the characters that i'm i'm writing about talking telling their stories and so in many ways writing down what they are quote unquote saying and i know that that sounds really sort of abstruse and mystical it's I, I, I mean, obviously it's because I'm thinking about my characters and what they would say, but it does seem that they get that consciousness or that outlook that is specific to them. And I think that as well as Cass, I also feel that it's a way of dealing with your life, your trauma, your your, your past experiences of, of making it to some degree coherent or to uh, to imposing at least a fictional order on it. And so, um, so yeah, in that sense, uh, I could say it, it frees you, but it's more that it puts puts things into an order.
2: Hmm. I think when I'm writing, I feel a great sense of uh, focus where I don't normally get it. And I feel like my problems and the things I'm worried about kind of go away until I'm done writing. So I don't know if it's freeing as much as it's focusing.
1: I think of it almost like diving into the dream. Mm. yeah yeah it's like the real world slips away because you're you're in a
0: world it's your world that you're making but isn't the real world
2: (laughs) so for everyone listening at home we're gonna be talking about the third act because we're into spoiler territory now in their climactic confrontation daryl reveals to cameron that dr paul root is their father did the father brother reveal work for y'all
0: Feel like the surprise of your father reveal is pretty tired now, post Star Wars and all that. But I will say that I really love the idea of surprise of your brother. I know that means that obviously they have to, sh- well, maybe not necessarily have to share a father. But I do like the brother part of that reveal. I think that is just you don't see that enough. But I don't necessarily need the lineage parental stuff attached to it.
1: I kind of felt like if they were going to do the, you know, uh, surprise, I am your father, that either it shouldn't have been like the surprise, I am your father, we, the audience should have known this right away because, and I think that this is where we've got the lack of a script problem, because if you wanted to prepare for that, you needed to have started in act one and sort of laid the groundwork or, you know, laid the laid the breadcrumbs. And if you're writing on a day to day, you just really can't go back and 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 do yeah. that kind of kind of retconning essentially.
2: Yeah, I 100% agree. I think it could have worked if there had been any foreshadowing, any groundwork. It was just, surprise, we're brothers. They don't look alike, and that guy's our dad. (laughs) He doesn't look like them. It's like, oh, okay.
0: So she's like, I know know the whole like evil scientist father thing. I I get it, I get it, Cronenberg. But the idea that he would let his son just live on the streets, knowingly and not do any kind of like any kind of support is like so dark because like yeah. what if he died like it's very easy to die if you don't have a house and uh-huh. you're living on the streets in a lot of ways like you can get hit by a car like if he's this precious cargo of like a ticking time bomb he's being really reckless
2: <laughs> very well off too you could have gotten him a job somewhere and have no one know about it very easily even a job away from the public you could very easily do data entry and not see a person all day. I've done it.
0: (laughs) Or like, maybe not even that. Like, I mean, if I was writing it, it'd be more fucked up in the sense that like, because he has been his dad from a young age, like you just socially conditioned him to believe like the Truman show. Like there isn't another world. This is your world. And like, he is in some like castle or some area where it's like, in a far off field where it's like, oh, humanity doesn't exist anymore. There was this big bomb. We're here. We're all we have left. Like to just really isolate him and make him think that reality is not what it is. That's what I would do. I just like lock him in a tower.
1: <laughs> it certainly fits in the, um, the trope of bad scientist, bad father that we've got going all the mm. way back to Shelley's Frankenstein, where basically he does the same thing. He puts together this creature. And then as soon as the creature develops uh, sentience, abandons him on the street and disavows any kind of parental relationship with him. But again, I'd love to have had this uh, previewed from the beginning, or at least like have the audience know, even if the characters
2: don't. So our other big reveal in the climax is that ephemeral was first used on pregnant mothers and it inadvertently created scanners. Revic is amassing large quantities, though so it's never really specifically revealed for what. And how did you all feel about this second twist, about where the scanners came from?
1: I thought that this was actually one of the most powerful uh, social commentaries in in the film, because obviously mm. it's clearly an allusion to the well-known problems with the which were like ephemeral in the movie tested on pregnant people who for uh i think for anxiety or for nausea and the results, as many of us know, were uh, serious problems in the genetic expression of of the developing fetus's DNA, and that caused lifelong lifelong problems for for them, and there were massive lawsuits and And I think that that's where we get into into an area deserving of of exploration in in body horror because still to this day we uh, we have a great many drugs that are, for obvious uh, reasons of ethics and consideration for people, are not tested on pregnant people, but aren't tested on, uh, aren't, aren't tested on women. Uh, or if presenting folks or, or trans folks, or uh, it's only tested on a, uh, a smaller number of the population. And with our trust in our, the medical profession and the drugs that we're getting, certainly Scanners is exposing the idea that, that we might be guinea pigs.
0: I understand why we don't test drugs and pregnant people anymore, but then the result of that even more terrifying. So just as someone who like physically can give birth and like, who would like to uh, have a family one day. Like I remember talking to my doctor about my beta blockers and being like, well, like, can I stay on them? If I like, if I conceive and it's like, well, the thing is, we have some data, but we don't really know. And there's like, that's something you hear a lot when the people are like looking into pregnancy and, and any kind of drug, it's like, well, we only go off the case studies of when it has happened to other people, but everyone's bodies are not the same. So th- that adds in another layer of terror too, where it's like, in some ways it's almost like, there should be more testum, but also there's so much risk with that. So I think that it's effective for that reason, where it's like, I wouldn't say it brings empathy into the film, but you can see like, why it was coming from a good place, but also how like scary that, is like how much lack of control we have over medicines that go into our body how they're tested how they're regulated and like I don't think we're going to be having scanners anytime soon but that idea is scary enough for me to like get latched on to the last act
2: what do you think Revick wanted to do with all of that he's thing? I know we saw some the one doctor was describing it do you think he's going for the water supply or something
0: yeah I think you mean Ravik the big bad of the film yeah yeah yeah, I think what he says to his brother, is pretty much what his plan was, was he wanted to uh, kind of, oh.
2: And I, I missed it in the film.
0: Oh, well, it's like, I i mean, you know, it's a villainous speech, you know, you hear it once, you hear it again. <laughs> He's uh, He reminds me of Magneto in that sense. I know you're going to bring it up in a bit, but he very much is like feels like very pro-mutant down with the humans because the humans won't be able to deal with us kind of thing is what I took from it.
2: Yeah, uh, cast referencing. There was a tweet a couple of years ago that I saw that said that Scanners was an unofficial X-Men movie. And I love that. And it is 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. I wish I could find it again, credit the person.
0: That's what kept me Um, watching, to be honest. Because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just watching a grounded X-Men movie. I was like, all right, let's see how this goes best.
2: (laughs) So we end with a body swap. Cameron wins the final duel and takes over Daryl's body. Did y'all feel like that was set up for
0: I think that was set up like I knew it was coming or like, but did, do did we know that the powers could do that? You mean,
2: do we know the powers did it break your uh, suspension of disbelief when it happened?
0: I'm so not sure. I know I felt wowed by it, but I still don't know if I like it or not. I think I was just like impressed by the audacity of that move because I fully thought that Kim wasn't come out just like. First of all, I can't, I still can't get over the fact that Kim slept through that whole thing, but just come on, Kim, but just, all right. So it's disbelief Kim sleeping through gigantic explosions and exploding bodies. Um, I thought she was going to come out and there'd just be two weirdly mangled corpse and be like, what, what happened? Um.
2: <laughs> the other weird thing is that Kim got drank first and slept much longer. I don't know if that's because their scanning powers are weaker. I don't know if Daryl Revick was full of shit when he said that they had the most powerful scanning powers. There's a lot of uh, no-script weirdness.
0: Yeah, like, why didn't she come to join the final battle? Like, she's also a scanner. Like, I was really waiting for her to come like, because she's not much of a character. So I was waiting for her to come in in the final act to redeem herself and that she was going to be like behind the door. And that's the way they get Daryl is because
1: there are two people on him. He didn't know, but like, she's just asleep the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I was disappointed certainly with sort of the peripheral nature of a lot of the female characters in this film. I think that they were very much sidelined and you can kind of, when you're doing a plot recap, you can, you can kind of leave them out and not miss a whole lot. I, I think that's something that Cronenberg certainly remedies really well in The Fly, mm. uh, where the Gina Davis character absolutely has agency and is that character and, and does things. And so I, I'm pleased to see that, that arc for him as a, as a director.
2: Kim over played by Jennifer O'Neill, who also produced the film which just surprises me because her character, like you said, is so on the periphery that you're doing a summary. I felt bad not including her in my summary, but I also like could not think of a way she was necessary to the story that was told.
1: Yeah. It was very much focused on father, sons and brothers and that conflict of uh, that conflict of power. Between
0: that and the pregnant mom that somehow doesn't, She's like, it seems like she's at least like seven to eight months along there. And she has no idea her baby's a scanner. How's the baby not tried to scan its mom by accident? You know, like those things. Like she has, she has no idea that she's carrying a baby scanner. You're like, what?
2: But I bet the mom of the baby that can scan people has been scanned and has gone to a doctor who just told her, don't worry about it. It's just a headache.
1: She's very chill in that waiting room. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point because yeah, yeah, exactly. How does she not know? Like, oh, it's moving around. Oh, that's really cool. And now it's scanning my brain.
2: Climax probably also has the most body horror in the film with the engorged veins and the, the bursting flesh. What do you feel like that kind of body horror adds to a film, this film in particular or any film in, in general?
1: Even though some of the special effects now uh, look like special effects, especially for the time. My God, they are amazing. And looking at it through that through that lens, uh, no pun intended, it takes it beyond the the natural, not necessarily into the supernatural, but into the hypernatural, hyperreal. And I think that we have that degree of engagement because we we have bodies and we have that degree of sympathy when we when we see somebody you know shaking or trembling or their eyes. You know, turning white or or blood exploding, and I think that that gives us that sense of, of of that power that the scanners genuinely have.
0: Yeah, I echo that, and I I'd say like to bring it back to your question of like what about that works for me in body horror specifically. I think just bringing you back the idea of just existentialism of body horror, like life is finite your time is finite the body is finite and that there is so many like delicacies about the body that you don't understand like for me as much as i do love the like oh it's so gross but the like face ripping scene like that that is deliciously grotesque i think the thing that got me the most was the idea of the veins getting bigger and bigger and not necessarily the exploding part, but the idea of like getting so full of blood that your arm is leaking out blood because you don't think about it a lot, but that's really what like, what a stroke is. You're a, a vessel just bursts. It can happen at any time, at any moment. And when you think and take a step back there, you're like, wow, there's all these things and chemical processes happening in my body at all this time that I don't have the visibility of. And so for a second, we get a little bit of the visibility about how like, it just takes one thing in your body to like, be slightly off to disrupt everything. I mean, that too is like like cancer too, right? Like it just takes one cell to decide not to die and just keep replicating as it's been doing. And then everything else is thrown out of whack. And when you think of it in that like molecular and like micro level bodies are so scary. So I think that that is ugh, just like the veins bleeding the arm without bursting for me, that was just... Oh, feeding on this for years now.
2: <laughs> I got some great thoughts before I hand it over to Cass. I think the high pitched scanner noises were perfect in the score. And it must have been very hard not to laugh while filming all of these psychic battles. I cannot imagine making like that like angry, constipated face and not laughing. <laughs> this film also had two sequels and a spin-off that also got a sequel. So Cass, other thoughts you had on scanners you want to talk about?
0: Yeah, so speaking of the power bit, I was listening to a, a podcast that was talking about how they didn't actually like the way the powers were expressed amongst the actors, and they brought up as a comparison Carrie and how when you're watching Carrie, the actual actor who's who's portraying Carrie doesn't do too much; she just averts her eyes like back and forth and it's relying on the camera to like use like love like levies and pulleys and all that to like move things and it's really showing the external extent of her power but it's never really focused on her performing it uh, you know what I mean so I was curious if we agreed with that if we felt like the way they did their possibly constipated faces worked in favor of the psychic power depiction of her like
1: oh it was a little bit too much I think for me, I I see what they're saying with uh, with the Palma's framing, where we see Sissy Spacek's eyes widen, we see her her attention uh, directed somewhere off frame, and then we see what happens off that frame, where you know someone's flying through the air, or you know, or or, or people are catching on fire. I understand what that person's saying about like the conservation phase. At the same time, though, I think that. The facial expressions, uh, I, to me, especially coming from uh, from Iron uh, from Ironside, who I think is uh, is amazing in in this film, I believed it. I believed that he was genuinely working his mind to make these things happen. Less so with Stephen Lack.
2: Yeah, I think in general, I I see what they're saying, and I think Carrie is just a lot less campy than Scanners in general, and I think Scanners. Part of its charm is the campiness. And so, like, I think if they had done very serious psychic stuff, I think the movie would suffer if that was the case, because like you all had said, like the second act was just like confusing mishmash. And we get this random reveal that two characters are brothers and this third character is their dad. It works because it's campy. It wouldn't work if it was shot like a Oscar bait film.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. So for a more fun question, would you like to have these powers? Okay. You unanimously we're all shaking our heads now. We're all shaking our heads now. Yeah. Uh, we're not we're not playing around with this stuff. Yeah. I was I was thinking about it when I was cooking and a funny, funny side note is I didn't think it was possible. And Chris always makes fun. In a, in a good way, Chris is my, my spouse, uh, about how I'm very powerful, but don't realize I am. <laughs> and if you meet me in real life, I'm like five, two, I'm very pint-sized, but I do do martial arts and stuff, but just like around the house, there's always been these like comical ways of things breaking where it's like, I'm hulking out. And this week, I I don't know how, but I broke a needle in half. <laughs> I was, I was trying to sew a patch onto my uniform and then I broke the needle in half and I was like, God damn it. And Chris was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> so I was like, if it's I like I don't know. I broke the needle. I didn't know you could break it. It was
2: like a queen break, or did you like it bent first and then. It no, it apart. was a clean
0: break. I was like, I, like it was a clean break. So you really I really are can, the whole cast. I know if I can't trust myself with the needle, I there's no way I could have scanner powers. I was just curious if anyone like because I feel like everyone loves watching X Men. I'm like, oh, would you really want that? So I'm glad we're all just like, no,
1: this seems like too much. <laughs> I remember seeing the cover. I mean, I, I realized that this is a bit of a divergence from scanners, but uh, you brought up Carrie, yeah. and I remember being uh, being a little kid and seeing uh, seeing Carrie on sale in the books in the bookstore with sissy spacex, so blood covered face and huge huge eyes, and reading it as a little kid and thinking, "Oh man, I wish I could do that," which hor- is horrifying in and of itself. Like you're not well. You're not well, a small child. And looking back, it's a darn good thing I didn't because no, 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 no. I'm a needle breaker as well if it makes you feel better. This is a sidebar, but my favorite line in this
0: movie was like probably the most interesting line Kim gets the whole time, where it's after that group meditation scanning situation and some people die and there's it's not totally explored but there's this idea that they can make like a coven with their scanning powers and she just says out of the blue she's like now I know what it feels like to die and that just got me where I was like oh because I guess technically in the logic of the film she was like tapped into their minds when they passed away so to have the knowledge of what it is like to actually feel someone else die now knowing that you're gonna feel that at some point in your life is like whoa So I really love that. I feel like a lot of this we've already covered. I feel like Kim needed more agency. We definitely talked about that a bunch. And we did kind of already touch on the limitations and extent of these powers. Were there anything else about the way the powers worked that we wanted to talk about before we moved on?
2: What the fuck was going on with that computer thing? (laughs) That was like the weirdest (laughs) moment. It was like, we're self-destructing the computer at gunpoint. It's going to hurt him <laughs> real bad. And he's just fine with the telephone melting on fire now.
0: Yeah, I don't get the, I don't get the melting phone. I kind of sort of got, <laughs> I just, Jesus, I kind of sort of got the computer stuff, sort of. If I still don't know how he can scan machines, because there's also that throwaway line from Kim where she's like, you're barely human. I'm like, wait, is he not human? <laughs> like, I just. Okay, Dr.
2: Ruth says something along the lines of like, you have a nervous system. A computer has a nervous system. <laughs> yeah. What? That's not how any of that works.
0: Yeah, I mean that's why again, Crime's the Future, much better movie. No offense, Cronenberg, because yeah, gets into that. But yeah. <laughs>
1: Oh, I don't know. All right, <laughs> do
0: you have anything to add? On, on I kind of just <laughs> threw my hands
1: up on that. You know, you have a network or a neural network or something to that effect. And so does the computer. It's like, well, I have a leg and a chair has a leg, but it doesn't, you know, that? nah, nah. Like, okay. At, at that point, I just sort of said, okay, it's magic. We're all right. And, and you know, just, just went with it. But no, I didn't find that persuasive. Well, i already ready to talk about one of my favorite films
0: ever, 2016, The Autopsy of Jane Doe. Yes. All right. Directed by Andre Ouvdra and written by Uvdra, Ian Goldberg, and Richard Nang, uh, who are also just notably partners on Fear of the Walking Dead as well. They're creatives in that world, so clearly they have a love of the undead. <laughs> uh, the a- Autopsy of Jane Doe gives a uniquely grounded approach to a cursed corpse story. Within Tommy and Austin's family mortuary, a Jane Doe body appears. And then after the local sheriff finds it at a grisly murder scene, there's some questions about how the body got there, who's this person. So they use the autopsy to start to unravel that mystery. Darkness haunts the mortuary in more ways than one. Mm -hmm. Special effects of this film were by uh, Stephen Byrne. And the prosthetics designer was Christian Mallet, I believe. And they worked together, again, a bunch. They did uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Stranger Things. They worked together on The, on the Witcher. Mallet did Saint Maud, which is phenomenal. She's also moved on to doing the, the prosthetics for the Mission Impossible movies, which I just imagine must be the most fun job in the world. I don't know if you're into those films. I've been watching it this past summer for just like fun, gleeful Friday night movie nights. And I just love the face mask reveals and how they just get more and more wily as a franchise. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's
0: my favorite. More, more like taking off your face reveals, please. So before I dive in, because I a film I love, so I have a lot to say about it. Did you all like this movie?
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It was such an intelligent, empathetic movie for. Uh, For pretty much all the all of the main characters, and I thought that that added layers of complexity and depth that I wasn't expecting, and I'm so glad to have gotten.
0: I love to hear that. I love when I love a movie and I get to share with other people. It's always the worst when you're like, eh, I feel mid about something, you know. Uh, But this one, is so good.
2: Yeah, I loved it as well. It's my third time watching it, and every time has been a joy. Like R.A. said, the relationship between the two main characters, the father and the son, feels so palpably real. Yeah. You could just take them out and make a drama with those same characters and those same actors. And I would still be as interested, probably.
0: Yeah. And I think I always always bring this up because I just think it's such a hard job to do. I love all in Catherine Kelly's portrayal of Jane Doe. So for this movie, they used an actual real body. They didn't use they might have used some prosthetics for the some of the, the well they did use prosthetics she wasn't actually getting carved open guys <laughs>
1: but, <laughs> that's commitment I mean, man
0: but for whenever you're seeing jane doe it is her it's not like a prosthetic face it's she's there with her eyes open almost the entire film obviously there's some shots where they shoot away So thank god so she can blink but basically this irish actor Uh, This was her, I believe her second acting gig overall while she was in school for biology and she auditioned and she was the first person to audition. And Udral was just like, yeah, I love this person. She got the role and the way that she was able to stay so still was she used this technique called shallow breathing, which is really fascinating. You let in a little bit of air and you let out a little bit of air. So like your body will be fine, like, but we're so used to taking in deep breaths and exhaling with deep breaths that if you only let in a little air, and let out a little air, your diaphragm and your body and your lungs, they don't really expand as much. So for the first couple of times you do it, it kind of feels suffocating. Like, like, oh God, where's my air? But like, technically you could breathe that way. And people do train to breathe that way for like special ops missions and things like that, where you don't have a guaranteed supply of air, which is just fascinating. So she did this for the entire film. So that's why like when she's lying there, you never see her chest move, which I just think is incredible. So just like all the... All the
1: claim for her, because I can't imagine doing that. I would have to like itch my nose like every five seconds. (laughs) And I was so impressed by the fact that even though she's quote unquote just lying there, I felt like we heard her voice. I felt like we felt her emotions. I felt that we were seeing her reactions um, even though quite obviously she is, uh, she's very still. Some of that obviously is from the, the cinematography and the, the framing of her mm-hmm. face, which puts us into that sort of communication with her face. It's one thing to be a presence when you've got specific actions and words, and it's another one when you are a presence, when you are lying, portraying a corpse.
2: Yeah, I want to second all of that. She was phenomenal. And like I said, you could really feel what she was feeling there. There was this study they did where they had, I learned about this in a film class in college. I don't remember the name of it, but they had like basically a neutral face and they would show like a video of a baby playing with a ball and the neutral face and audiences would respond that the person was happy. And they'd do another one where they'd be like, here's a dog that's crying and can't eat. And I'd go back to the same exact shot of the neutral face and people would say, oh, the person is upset. Um, I think she had some of that going for her as well, which is not to take away from her performance.
0: Before we dive into the characters, just one thing that I think the, I, I found a, an interview with the director at Geek that it was really nice to read and I'll link to it in the show notes. And he was talking about like the purpose and intent behind the film. And one of the things he said that struck me was, it's something I'm really interested in. The idea of what you do in the face of something extraordinary like that. How do you react as a human being to something that is incomprehensible? How do you deal with that as a rational human being? So I'd love to ask, based on this film, and without spoiling just yet, what the big reveal is and and who this Jane Doe is, do you think that the
1: characters react in a believable way? One hundred percent. I believe this relationship between uh, between Tommy and Austin, and I believe them as people. It wasn't one of those situations where you're sitting there watching a character in a horror movie and you're thinking, you could turn on the lights, you could leave, or you or. You know, any sort of decision that a person in a similar situation might normally make. No, I, I believed what they did, and I believed why they did it.
2: I totally believe them, and I believed that they were coroners. So, like, their reactions to things, they weren't my reactions, but that's how coroners would react in my mind.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that really give really give props up to the director, because he had uh, Amelia Hirsch and Brian Cox go to autopsies and actually watch I believe there was like four back-to-back autopsies happening and so they had to be in the room and watch it and then obviously speak to the coroners but they also brought coroners on set so that they could ensure that the way they were doing things was like by the book and as much by the book as possible and I felt that like I feel like that was so important to like get you hooked into the supernatural part of the film is like at the at the start you have to believe that they're they know what they're doing as like coroners and also that they're treating these corpses in such a delicate and precise way so that when things do start becoming strange, we're like, we believe them. We're like, oh, these are experts. We're, of course, this is weird because they tell us, do I know how dark the color of blood should be based on X hours of death? I do not, but they're saying that it's not right. So it must not be right. So I think that was really essential to hooking us in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think having the camera so they had a reason to talk was also very integral to the success of the movie because they couldn't just, if there's no camera, they can't just be like, oh, the blood's the wrong color because both of them would know but the camera gives us the the excuse for them to say
0: it. Yeah, in a lot of ways, the lens of the camera feels like our eyes, like we're scanning over this body and when our eyes see something they then see it almost like, it's almost like a first person video game in that way, which I think was really cool for an approach. Uh, and I would love to ask, speaking of like the supernatural stuff, at which point do you think the supernatural stuff really starts to begin in the mortuary?
1: For me, it was the it was the discrepancy between the condition of the body as presented and the condition that she should have been in, mm-hmm. given uh, the time of death and given the, the nature and the extent of the injuries that, Uh, that they were seeing content or trigger warning for anybody Uh, obviously i'm going to talk about uh, trauma to to a body they noticed that she has uh, completely shattered wrists ankles and she has vaginal trauma and later they discover that her her tongue is cut out and none of these things is present or visible or even uh, there's no indication on the outside of her body, which looks just, I mean, she initially, uh, when she's discovered in the, the dirt in the cellar, it almost looks like she's sleeping.
2: So I agree that those things were, were suspicious, but I didn't necessarily go to Supernatural there. I think at least the first time I saw this movie, I didn't know what kind of movie I was getting. So it could mm. be that she was not human. I think Supernatural for me landed when the radio said, we're going to have this beautiful night. Mm. And then we start to hear thunderstorms. And so it seemed like reality was changing there in a way that convinced me it was supernatural.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's, I'm the only one that thinks this, but I like my theory, so I'm going to stick to it. I believe it's when the cat, I'm sorry, I forget the cat's name. And also while I'm speaking about the cat. Stanley, yes. Uh, If you are a big fan of cats, warning, this cat does not survive this. (laughs) Uh, You should probably know if you're watching a horror movie, 50-50, if the animal will ever survive, especially if it's a pet. But there's a scene right, I believe it's right before Jane Doe officially arrives in the mortuary. It's when they're just in the mortuary and and doing their daily jobs. Where like Cat just jumps into the the vent in the inexplicably and in a way that it seems like this isn't a thing that stanley just does because that really confuses i forget if if it's tommy or austin but i I think it might be austin but it really confused him like why is my cat in the vent right now and i love the suggestion that the cat was getting spooked ahead of time because it sensed something was coming Mm. before she was actually in the room so i love that read of it so um, that's just my personal one there's not really a right answer it's just fun to play yeah i think this film is a master class and how to deliver tension for some of the reasons we already brought up the idea that as the body is like quite literally un- untangled and pulled apart layer by layer we get more details and facts for like what is happening to this mystery but I, they also do a really good job and, and with the camera angle, angles too of we see what we see when we're supposed to see it like we're very much fed information at a even keel pace but they also do this really interesting thing with music where right before any like cutting and carving or bodies is supposed to happen there's like a blare of like rock music and the director described it as like inserting fun and games and I'm curious if it worked for you I think for me I think it worked because I think that it helped me feel a bit more like comfortable and safe even though I knew after a while of watching like okay they think they're okay and calm but they're probably not but at first I was like oh okay it's okay Whatever's gonna happen, it's not. This is not the moment for the jump scare or for a big traumatic event to happen in the story because the music is too fun for that. It would not make sense. I'm curious if it worked for you all and if you sensed your connection to that changing as the film went on.
2: I think it, it worked for me in that the music was music that they were actually listening to, mm-hmm. rather than like something the director piped in. Like they had a radio there manipulating, and then Pearl chant would play.
1: And I like the kind. I like that. I think that I I think the term is diegetic element where it's coming from within the house as a work, but I, but I loved how it set up the contrast between that creepy little song that we hear multiple times throughout that in many ways is sort of thematic statement as well, which is let the sunshine in. It's sort of a cheesy little tune that feels more like it's from the 1920s or certainly from an even earlier period. And I thought that that worked really well as in, in dialogue with the more uh, comforting, uh, rock music that's more familiar mm-hmm.
0: to us one thing i did want to ask is we've talked about it earlier but with the wide camera lens that this film uses there's one scene in particular where i was, I was watching it with my spouse and it's it's not like a scene that anything happens but it's one of those scenes where it's the suggestion that something is about to happen that really creeped us out and he pointed it out and i was like oh that's a great it's a great call where the two characters tommy and austin are in tommy's office and they're like hunched over a desk and then they both look off screen and the camera just is just watching them and in, in like a wide, like a wide set look elsewhere. And we have no idea what it is. It ends up being like the camera turns and then we say, oh, there's a door and there must be something behind that door. Uh, but for that moment, like it could be anything. And so I was wondering if there was any scenes like that
1: with how it was framed that
0: really got you. We were like, oh, I now feel dread. I think
1: for me, the the dreadiest of them was the way in which we saw the underside of the door in one particular scene when things are just going really super haywire and we hear that bell and we see that foot. For me, I I, I mean, and I realize it's not the the goriest part and I realize it's not the, the most surprising, but that was like genuinely terrifying. You saw that foot, you heard that bell and your imagination filled in the rest.
2: Yeah. For me, at least this time I watched, not the first time, She'll be obvious in a minute. Um, the scene where Brian Cox has the axe in his hand and the elevator door's not closing because so I remember what's about to happen. And it's so horrific. And I don't want it to happen again. I don't want to see it again. Honestly, like this time when I watched it, I just like kind of went on my phone during that moment. Like, <laughs> no, I don't need to. I remember this. I remember how this feels. I can uh, play words with friends for a minute here and not feel it a third time.
0: So speaking of moments where we wanted to look away and delving a bit more into the body heart aspect of it. Was there a particular part of the autopsy that was very difficult for you to watch? I was surprised that for most of it, and I don't know if it's because I've seen this film so many times, but like for most of it, I was like, okay, I feel like there was two points where I was like, steal. I stealed myself. I think one uh, and again, trigger warning because we're talking uh, vaginal trauma. One was when I saw the Q-tip like, it's, it's gorgeously shot where like, we don't ever see the Q-tip going into a vagina, but we know where the father is in the position of the body and that he's putting something up like an orifice. And so like, we understand what's happening, but just like the beat of that and just the silence of it and then what follows. And then again, I think the slicing of the brain really got me that one. I, Oh, I like felt myself crawling back into my body. Just I don't know if it's because of like
1: how he sliced it, like it was like cake or something, but that really got to me. I think for me personally, I was okay with the brain. I appreciated the fact that there was absolutely zero, as far as I could tell, sexualization of that body. They handled the vaginal inspection. We know what he's doing. We don't see it and I'm fine. I think what stuck with me were the serration marks along her tongue and what that implied.
2: Absolutely. I really do appreciate you brought up that the film never sexualizes, which I also appreciated. But in terms of scariest autopsy moment for me, the most uncomfortable was the fly in her nose. Mm, mm. I think bugs really get me. And so like, you see the legs first, you're like, what the fuck is that? Mm. It's very uncomfortable. Um, and then it comes out and you're like, oh, it's just a bug. Well, the way that they react to it too, they're so calm about it in a way that, I mean, I could never be a coroner, but there's no way I could ever be calm seeing a fly come out of a dead person's nose.
0: Yeah. I had a a poetry friend who became a coroner and it was so interesting that trajectory because I was just like, (laughs) I was like, really you, you're going to be a coroner. But what was, what was interesting about it was just the, the mentality behind doing that. Like she was just like, yeah, well, like, people give all this attention to birth, but like, why wouldn't you want to give all this attention to death? Like it's your last, it's your last hurrah it's your last thing. Like why wouldn't you want your body to like look the best that it could possibly be? And And thinking of it that way, was just like, it it breaks my brain personally, but I'm glad that there's other people to do that work that are very conscientious and thoughtful (laughs) because like, that's what a profession. Again, I want to echo what people already said. I really like the characters in this film. I think the dialogue, especially is a standout, I think one of the best parts is Brian Cox's like dad statement of what are you doing? Where at first it seems like, oh man, what a lazy writing. But the more and more he says it, you get the sense that it's like, oh yeah, this is like how every dad has that thing that they say when they really want to say something else and they're trying to express something else but they just have this go-to phrase that comes up you're like okay i guess we'll talk about the ball game again even though we're not talking about the ball game and i just love that he has that phrase of what are you doing and he says it to him like 20 times in this film (laughs) but now let's head into spoiler terry so we find out right about like close to midway through definitely we know for sure in the final act that this corpse is actually cursed by the men around the time of the Salem witch trials who were persecuting, torturing, killing women for fear of their power by calling them witches and how that all happened. I think the reveal worked for me. And I'm very, as someone who's been a New Englander my entire life, who who's lived in Massachusetts now for well over a decade and who's been to Salem like countless times, like I'm very protective over when people like use the Salem witch trials as a plot device. Because I think that a lot of the time it's like sensationalized. I think in a lesser film, we would have had a flashback to her being burnt alive at the stake. We would have seen kind of like Saw style. We would have like had a flashback and seen someone like stabbing this like faceless woman, right? Like we would have, it would have been that. And I'm so happy that it's not because it feels even more terrifying for me because I, can't help but think like this actually happened to women who've lived, to people who have walked on the same ground as me, literally walked over the graves of people that uh, were killed in the Salem Witch Trials. And it makes me think of their bodies, it makes me think of the things they had to endure. And that's part of our history as New Englanders. And it's really complicated. And I very much think that this is a way to handle it, to make it more grounded, more real. And that is what's like chilling, not to make it so like, like I do love the witch, but like the witch does sensationalize aspects of, of that time period. So I would like to hear if both of you think that the way they handle the Salem witch trial reveal was sensitive or, or not or if it worked in the plot or if it could have been
1: any other reveal and you still would have been on board. I 100% agree that in the hands of a lesser director, we would have seen some kind of uh, some kind of, you know, montage, thing and uh i I hadn't thought about that until you just now said that but you're but i realized with with genuine horror that you're 100 right i think late in the movie i I think it's i'm sorry i forget if it's austin or tommy i think it's tommy that is the the brian cox character Mm -hmm. says something to the effect of she wants us to feel it too Mm -hmm. that is her ritual by not making this something that we see happening to somebody else. We have to empathetically imagine how her wrists got broken, what happened to uh, what happened to her in terms of uh, sexual assault, what happened to her in terms of getting her tongue cut out, and in that we place ourselves much more empathetically into her place than if it were happening to somebody else on that mm. on that screen. And I think that that sort of empty space we fill that empty space and we fill it with us. And so we participate as in that victimization, which in many ways is, is that character's intent that we feel it to.
2: Absolutely. I would just like to add that I appreciated the film address the fact that the, the women who were killed during the Salem witch trials were not witches, but yes. women who owned land that the people who killed them wanted. Yeah. I very much appreciated the film addressed that.
0: Yes. It's all, it was all about it was all about real estate. It was about real estate. And it's, that's a sad and honest truth They just, they just wanted their land and that, and they just like needed to distract uh, the general public with like, a, with scandal, which still happens today, you know? So it's just like, I am very happy with the film did X. I feel like that's why I do love the witch. I watch it every Halloween season, but I feel like films like that, if I sit with them too much, I do eventually work around back to being angry because if, you're ever making the person actually be a witch. I think that it just, it just, it corrupts in a way um, that I like that what actually happens in this one, like, yes, she, she is a witch, but it's not because she ever was a witch. It's because the like violence uh, and like pain and the suffering that she felt was so great that it then gets uh, immortalized and like, that's what's coming out. Like her, her vengeance is what's coming out. But this was at the end of the day, this is just a very sad and broken woman. You know, that's, that that's the scariest part of it. Um, So I think they, they threaded that needle really, really, really well. I love that you brought up the word ritual, Ari, because that was like my final question. What do you think that her ritual is? What do you think she's trying to accomplish? If anything, how do we think uh, that is explained by
1: the ending or not? I what I saw her doing was that she is she's a text Mm -hmm. and like all texts, they need to be read and they need to be decoded. Mm -hmm. And the coroner's job is to read this body of work, this text, and say what happened to it to make it die. Not necessarily who did it, not necessarily why they did it, but why did she die. She's there to be read by Tommy and Austin. And they try to read her in a number of different ways, first as a sex worker and then maybe as a victim of human trafficking. And then and you're thinking her silence is deafening in this movie. And ultimately it becomes about women's silence in, the face of trauma. In many ways, Tommy and Austin are, are are trying to articulate. They become the articulators of what happened to her. She's essentially, she's making them tell her story. She's making them figure out what happened, that she's making them realize what they did in a very vivid way. And so she, again, we're going back to that line about she wants us to feel it too. And when you're figuring it out and you have that epiphany, yeah, you're feeling it too.
2: That's fascinating. I hadn't thought of it that way. In the reading, do you think she lit the camera on fire on purpose? Or do you think it was accidental? Does she want to do this again and again?
1: I do. The nature of a ritual is that it's done over and over and
2: over. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I did not think of it in a a ritualistic way. I thought she was being, I thought that she was permanently alive, Mm. could not die, but did also like was missing a heart and was in her way trying to just defend herself from these guys Mm -hmm. but i think that y'all's reading is a much much better reading than mine so i'm converted to what y'all are saying
0: yeah i mean i think there's parts of that too right like i think i like in your reading like in in all of our readings honestly but like in yours particular ryan that like it's agency is the forefront you know like she she might have a heart or like working organs but like her agency is protecting her even in death or in the undeath of her life. My take is that it is a ritual that she does again and again and again, uh, and that there's kind of a point to it. So I think that in that moment when Tommy is bargaining with Jane, I don't think Jane is being like uh, merciful, right? When he's like, oh, if you take me you'll spare my boy. And he thinks there's this arrangement happening and that there's just like cosmic agreement. I don't necessarily think that she's trying to appease him in any way or listen to him at all. But I do think that she's like, oh, you would like a challenge? And the challenge is you have to endure all that I've endured. And if you list, if you watch like all the, the bodily traumas that they list off in the film, he only gets about a fourth of the way through experiencing and feeling the pain that she endures, right? He gets a broken wrist. He gets the broken... uh, Uh, ankles. He starts to have trouble breathing. So we can assume that's the burning blackened lungs. Uh, And then he pleads for his son to kill him. And his son does. His son takes a a scalpel and stabs him in the heart to put him out of his misery. But I think, and as this is happening, we're seeing Jane kind of animate in in a way. And I think it could, I'm not quite sure where it would have gone. I don't know if it would have been like, she would have been a collective whole and would have come back to life, or she would have just been collected back into a semblance of a being and just found peace and be done. But I think the challenge that he failed was like, you will endure every pain I've endured and he can't, like he can't do it. And he gives up. And because he gives up, the ritual will continue. And my working theory is that at some point, maybe there'll be someone, ideally a guy. I think the whole point is she's targeting men. She lets them, the. from what we see, at least, all the like the women in this film are seemingly killed very quickly. It's the men who do this, who have the suffering. And I think mm-hmm. that, you can even see with that one body they bring in, who's at the start of the film where the murders take place that we don't ever witness. He also has like black and lungs head trauma. So you can see that ritual being done on him in, in small ways too. So I think that she's just holding out for someone to be like courageous enough to, to hold all the suffering she suffered. And so far, no one's passed the test. And so this will just keep happening until maybe someone does. I think an alternative route is she's just vengeful and she'll just do this forever because fuck everyone. <laughs> but I kind of like the idea that she's testing people.
1: I love this theory. I think it makes a lot of sense and explains why they failed the test, both of them, even though they are compassionate characters. We are not meant to hate these guys and we're not meant to see them as misogynists. We mm-hmm. see them respecting and caring for uh, for for the women in their lives and, and caring about their opinions. And regret and and, and, and um, mourning, mourning their deaths and understanding or trying to understand the reasons why, even though we don't see it. And again, talk about a metaphor for trauma, looking great on the outside, but not so great on the inside. And they fail. They fail, the, they fail this test. They both end up dead. And I think that that is the the best, your your theory, Cass, I think is the best answer for why that happens.
0: Yeah. I didn't think of it until you just said about the trauma we don't see, but it I think it adds weight to uh, Brian Cox's character when he's just like, I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell that like my wife was suffering. I just couldn't see it. Like he couldn't feel it. And he's like, wow, what did I ever know about her? And it's like, probably not a lot. <laughs> and I feel like it's, yeah, it's it's a great metaphor for that idea. Um, what do you think, Ryan?
2: Well, I have a question for y'all actually. Yeah. Do you think if someone completed the ritual, could we see as Brian Cox's ankles and wrists break, her ankles and wrists unbreak? Yes. Do you think if someone were to complete this ritual without having to be euthanized, they endured all that pain, would she come back? Would she be walking around then?
0: I don't know. I think the film is giving us evidence to say that she would reanimate. But I think it's not answering that part because I think it it wants us to remember that this is not her fate, that she won't be able to (laughs) walk. but I think it'd be interesting
1: if she did, but that's not this film. <laughs>
0: this is not, it's like yeah, the witch revenge strike back. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> yeah. I like, I, I, I just want to say, I love that. Uh, I love Cass's reading. Um, I, I think she would be uh, finally allowed to just be at peace. Mm. Mm. That's my, that's my, that's my thought. But again, I, I also agree that that's not this film. That's not the point.
0: Yeah. Oh, what a great film. Mm-hmm. Oh, are there any other thoughts about it before uh, we leave our little coven session?
2: I got one or two um, that just like writing that impressed me or storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the very beginning, we have a long walk through basically every hallway, mm-hmm. and it's a very good inventory of the things they're going to use to scare us later. And it yeah. doesn't feel like tacked on or anything, it feels like part of the movie. I think that's just like a very good technique. If you're going to scare me in a long hallway, show up the hallway first in a logical way. My other writing thought was Brian Cox's character thinks that he's taking care of Emil Hirsch's character. And Emil Hirsch's character thinks he's taking care of Brian Cox's character. And they have this like power dynamic where they both think that they're doing the other one a favor. Yes. I think that is so true to life with adult children and their parents and who's taking care of who. We're all thinking that we're the ones taking care of everyone else. Everyone else is thinking they're yeah. taking care of us. Very good yeah. writing.
0: Especially with like the the way that parental relationships with adult children change. When one of your parents passes, it 100% nails that. Where it's like the the supposed nuclear family or whatever family structures have been broken. And then it's like adds another layer of, of weird caretaking things there too. Which I think the film does a great job of capturing without hitting us over the head with it. Like they never even say the word suicide, but we all know what happened, and I think yeah, so delicately handled.
1: And again, respectfully, again, because we uh, we don't get the sense, or at least I did not, that this character committed suicide because of a failure on Brian Cox's end or or Austin's end to uh, to do something. We feel that her trauma was individual and, and, and that she, that there was some degree of, of difficulty in making that accessible. It made him aware that, yeah, there's much more going on below the surface. And I think that that's part of what we see him feeding into not wanting Austin to, to move away because that's the family that he has left. And I I loved that, complexity with the characters and the the honesty there and it added a ton to to what might otherwise have been um a much more um much more sort of you know gore fest and this gave it yeah. depth
0: yeah i feel like in a in a lesser script you would have like there's scaffolding i can see the scaffolding i can see where i'm being emotionally manipulated just because of like the writer brain and me right like i know i know what they're doing but i don't feel like it's like I don't feel tricked i feel like it's well thought out and plotted and and handled tactfully but i think if it was another another hands on that script like it they very much could have felt like wooden characters that you could have just gotten away with and put any corners in this role but it does not feel that way at all well things have been messy (laughs) is there anything ra that you'd like to close with would you like to talk anything more about your upcoming work, any things that are in progress, work that's available and that we'd love to ingest. <laughs> I love body
1: horror and I love the, uh, the choices that were available for, uh, for, for different reasons. Uh, corporate Body, which is out now through uh, Cemetery Gates and is uh, eligible for the 2023 Stokers is very much about that intersection of to what degree are we guinea pigs for uh, for drug companies for uh, for manipulation and also um fathers and sons and that dynamic between them and, and these two films intersected with what i'd recently written in a way that i hadn't, i didn't even really anticipated. because in the in corporate body we have a a, a young man who's who's just hurting for certain as far as money goes and he signs up for a highly experimental drug treatment and with a with minor operation he's told and it has uh, it has catastrophic results not only for him but for an older man that he's sort of teamed up with and that idea of ownership and whose body is it is something that i think is certainly uh, certainly going on in, in all three of those works the one that i've written in these two two films that we've examined and in terms of uh, coming up, I've, uh, I'm i really looking forward to, to having my next novella through Cemetery Gates uh, coming out. It's called Words Made of Flesh. And so, yeah, we've got that intersection of, of, of the body as text or the text as body that we saw a whole lot in, in Jane Doe. And so it was a real pleasure having these choices available. And so a genuine pleasure to be able to talk with, it, with folks who are so enthusiastic and knowledgeable.
2: Thanks for being here. I mean, where can people find you online? Do you have a Twitter website?
1: I have Twitter slash X, whatever it's going by nowadays, as well as Blue Sky Threads, Instagram, and, um, uh, and a website. And so I've got a link tree, on, I think, on all those. And so, you know, feel free to uh, to look me up, read my stuff, and
2: hopefully enjoy it. Very cool. Um, I have a Patreon starting this month. Um, so I hope people check that. And Cass, you have a thing coming out too, right?
0: I do. I have my debut horror novella, *The Caretaker*, coming out in uh, a week. I'm not sure when this will drop. So it's September 15th. So you'll probably it'll probably be out by the time you're listening to this. Uh, it's from Harris Scream Press. Please get a copy. I hope you like it. If you like anything I've said today, it'll probably be up your alley. There'll be weird jokes, ghosts, trauma. Enjoy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening.
1: Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you, Thank you so much.